Before we get started, we have, I want to give a special thank you and acknowledgement to Howard Sandifer and Darlene Sandifer, the founders of the Chicago West Community Music Center, for coming up with this concept of a video podcast. They sort of said, let's reach out to our celebs and newsmakers. Let's reach out and have lively conversations. So with that in mind, here we are tonight with Mr. Richard Steele. Richard Steele grew up on the south side of Chicago. He dreamed of radio. Well, he made that dream a reality in 1970. He came to Chicago Radio, and he has never left us since then, thank God. He has been on WBON, WBMX, WXFM, WGCI, WVAZ, WBEZ, and don't forget WJPC owner of Johnson Publishing. So at, at any rate, let's get started with Richard Steele, please. What's up, Rich? Not much. I had a hard time keeping a job, obviously, you know. <laughs> uh, let me also add that uh, one of the things I did was uh, I was a pledge host uh, on WTCW Channel 11 for about 20 years. And so I think that's part of what allowed me to main, remain visible in Chicago. Absolutely. I've seen you on those. Absolutely. Absolutely. The doo-wop shows. Yes. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But now, but you you have officially semi-retired. I don't know what that word semi-retired means, but what are you doing nowadays? Well, you know, the deal was when COVID came along, it put the brakes on a lot of things for everybody. Um, and I just, I think within the last 18 months, I've started to do stuff again. I was doing a, uh, a, uh, jazz show on the radio, University of Chicago, WHPK. And uh, that stopped and they were running tapes uh, during, you know, when COVID was going on. And when COVID eased up, they said we could come back in the studio. So that's what I do. I do uh, jazz on Sundays twice a month. I love jazz. I get to play what I want. I don't get paid, but it's okay because I love the music, right? And so I do that. Um, I'm, I was on the board of uh, SAG-AFTRA, which is the union that supports uh, people in radio, television, and uh, actors. And I, I've been on the board for like, I don't know, 12, 13 years, uh, but I, uh, I'm i not on the board now. I just recently left the board. I also am a member of, uh, I'm on the board of CAP. I don't know if you've heard of CAP, but it's the Chicago Area Project. And what they do is uh, training for uh, black and brown people in the community, uh, jobs, job training, uh, food assistance, education, a lot of things, a big organization, their, their budget is like over a million dollars. And so that's a real, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it makes me feel really good to be part of that. So, and I, you know, I am see occasional jazz shows, you know, like uh, the Hyde Park Jazz Festival, uh, which didn't do it the year before, but this past summer they did do it. So we were back and I emceed that. I've been emceeing it for the whole 15 years. So that's, that's kind of, stuff I do, you know, spend time with the grandkids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. This podcast is called Black Muse. Who inspired you, Richard? Who made you want to be great in radio? Well, uh, way back in the day when I was when I was really a kid, I mean, like a, a little kid, uh, this is too far back for you, but 
portable radios with these boxes. They had a, a, a battery that was as big as a brick. And uh, so I got one, I think, for Christmas. And, and I, but I, I wasn't supposed to listen at night, so I put it under the covers and <laughs> listened to the radio here in Chicago. And, uh, and you know, I heard uh, people like, there was a guy named Sam Evans. He called Jam with Sam. He was on for a long time. But even before that, when I was living in Brooklyn, where I was born, my grandmother used to listen to soap operas. So I, I listened to soap operas with her. And I liked that a lot, you know, uh, soap operas. I thought, oh, I mean, for back in the day, that was good as TV. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm talking about in the 40s, uh, you know, like in the, uh, in the early, mid 40s, you know what I mean? So that was, uh, to me, intriguing to be to hear people do what they did on the radio. It was like you know, like you're watching a play, but you didn't watch anything. You just listened to it. So I was fascinated with that. And then later on, uh, what I really became incredibly fascinated with was hearing people on the radio doing their thing. I was living in New York. There was a station called uh, WWRL, which was kind of like WVON uh, was here in Chicago. And uh, I listened to them. This is when I was going to radio school. And um, they had some incredible disc jockeys. And I was like, man, that, that's smoking. So uh, they used to rock. And then at night, I listened to jazz. Uh, there was a guy named Symphony Sid who used to play jazz at night. I heard a lot of Miles Davis, and Sonny, you know, Sonny Rollins and Coltrane and all of that. And so I loved both. You know what I mean? But uh, the guy was really smooth at night. Flashing back to Chicago a bit, when I was in high school, I used to listen to Sid McCoy. Sid McCoy had this smooth voice. He was so cool. And at one point, we lived next door to him. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was like, when I'd see him, I was, I think I was in high school. And I'd see him leave his house and he'd have a suit bag over his arm, you know, like he was going out of town. He had a 1958 Chevy Impala. It was white. And it was cool. I said, the guy is cool on the radio and he's got a cool car. You know what I mean? And uh, he had a nice little little family. He was married. He had two kids, two girls. And uh, my, my brother and I remember always seeing him and, you know, just kind of going, wow, that's Sid McCoy. And, uh, you know, later on, I mean, at, at some point, too, I did listen to Herb Kent, uh, who uh, was an example for me in terms of Herb Kent and Sid McCoy had these smooth deliveries. You know what I mean? And I like that a lot. Uh, so that appealed to me. And I said, well, you know, like, I really want to do that. Check this out, Clarence. There are very few people who ever do the thing that they say they're going to do in the high school yearbook. You know, when they have your picture and they say, well, I'm going to grow up to be a you know, teacher. I'm going to be a pilot. <laughs> Behind my name, I have, I'm I want to be a radio disc jockey. I have no idea why I said that. I mean, I, I, you know, because I've been exposed to radio, but in terms of having that as a goal, uh, I mean, I, you know, that's, if you look at my, I've still got my yearbook. And if I look at it today, it says, that's what I want to be. And I'm like, really? <laughs> you know? That's amazing. Yeah, wow. it is. Yeah. Yep. True story. Ooh. Um, going back, any regrets at all, looking back on your long career in Chicago radio? Anything that you would do differently now or any regrets at all? Well, you know what, Clarence, I, I would, sometimes I think to myself that uh, if I had been more marketable, and don't get me wrong, I enjoyed the success I've had. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been good to me. But there are times when I thought, gee, if I had been more marketable, 
I could have made the kind of money that Tom Joyner made, and Doug Banks made. Um, and then my wife quickly reminds me that there are very few people who have been in the business as long as you were, consistently, very seldom out of work, and you made more than the average working person makes. <laughs> you know, that's true. You know what I mean? But so every time I get on that page, she helps me to get off that page. You know, because it has been good. I made money. I mean, I you know, salary was good, and so. It wasn't, I didn't get the kind of money they got, but there, there are some people who, listen, I know a lot of people who came, who worked in small markets like Roanoke, Virginia, like I did, and they never got out of that cycle. I mean, they, you know, they never got past, uh, they may have worked in Atlanta, which is something that almost happened for me. But in terms of getting to a, a, a Chicago or a New York or LA, come on, man, that's unbelievable. You know, so um, I was blessed. You know, and so in terms of doing anything differently, basically, no, but you know, that part about the money sometimes, <laughs> sometimes okay. I get it, yeah, I get a feel for that, you know. You call your talks conversations versus interviews. What's the difference, and why do you do that? Well, the bottom line to that, in terms of my approach, and something I learned from other people who did that, who did talk radio was that you know listening is very important you know you can have a set of questions and things that you want to answer or you want answers to and then uh, as you talk to the person you can determine that they want to go in another direction and so um you know unless you're doing a news interview if you're doing a news interview you want to stick to the topic uh politicians know that after you when you ask the question a second time that's it they don't they didn't answer they know the clock is ticking and so they because you got to move on to the next topic but when you're just talking to people uh you know uh, generally speaking in an interview with with his with someone who is uh an actor or a uh, some someone involved in the community or an author uh you have you can take your time with that and listen carefully and when they respond in a certain way you can you know you can take it in that direction so their answers are very important and listening is very important let me tell you a quick uh, story about Eartha Kitt. Eartha Kitt uh, was a guest. I was working at WBEZ, and she was she came to Chicago to do a concert. So when she got to the radio station, she, this was a live interview, and I was worried if she'd get there on time because the uh, clock was ticking, and I said, oh, she's not here yet. So when she got there, uh, she terrified my producer. I mean, she was, she was angry because... Uh, the right people didn't pick her up at the airport and something else didn't happen. And uh, uh. so he came in and told me, he said, she's really pissed. <laughs> he said, I don't know what you're going to do about that. But uh, Yo. so so he, he he brought her in the studio and, uh, you know, we sat down and then uh, it seemed that everything I asked her before we went on the air, she had a problem. With, you know, she said, so I said, look, you know, I know it's a great thing when you're performing outdoors. She was performing at some outdoor venue. She said, I hate performing outdoors. I was, ooh, that was the wrong thing. <laughs> and everything I asked her was the wrong thing, except, and I don't remember what the question was, but I had I hit on the right thing right before we went on the air. And uh, we rolled from there. I mean, she was cool. She was flirting and everything after that. So, you know, sometimes you just get lucky. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I just kept hit, I just kept hitting her with different things hoping she something would catch. This is before we went on the air, because we had like five minutes left before we before we went live, you know what I mean? So uh, 
sometimes that happens. It was great. So you never know. You got to sort of go you, with you, the flow. You never know. You never yeah. know. Now, Howard Washington was another one that you interviewed, that you had a conversation with. How, how, how was that? How were those conversations with the mayor of Chicago, Howard Washington? Well, the deal with that is um, the radio station had hooked up a deal where, where I could talk. They used to have a sort of a press gangbang once a month with all the black reporters at WGCI. And that was a round table and everybody was there. Uh, our general manager, I think it was Mark Dyson at the time, he said, listen, I'm gonna try to set up a situation where it's just you talking to Harold. I said, oh yeah, well, that would be cool. So he, they set up a situation where once a month, Harold Washington would come into my, I had a show, a talk show at night from 11 to 11 to four or five in the morning. So once a month, uh, Mayor Washington would come in and uh, we'd take phone calls and my producer really didn't uh, screen the calls because Harold didn't want that. He wanted to be able to talk directly to the people. So when he and I talked about different things, I'd ask him questions about uh, city business. And, uh, you know, he was, he was smooth. He was very forthcoming, but he, was, he knew the game. You know, he was, he was really good at it. And so I was always concerned that when people call in, you know, they're going to try to trap him with a question or whatever. They he was so smooth, like he there was no question that he didn't ask or answer rather in a satisfactory manner. He was one of the best I've ever seen at that, you know. And our conversations uh, were excellent. I mean, I asked him about things that concerned the city, and uh, you know, he was he was so personable. You know, it was Richard Steele, but he called me, "Well, Dick, you know, uh, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know." So he he was a he was a hell of a guy. He really was. He was incredible. Yeah. Now, how about, you know, there's such a long list, Ossie Davis, Obama, Oprah, so many that you've interviewed, that you had conversations with, excuse me. Anything you can say about them? Ossie Davis was the most interesting person I ever interviewed. He was incredible. He was, he was uh, current. He knew about the past. And, you know, he gave the, uh, he gave the eulogy at Malcolm X's funeral. You know that. Yes. But he, he was so well-rounded, you know, and he's, and he was straight up. I went to see him on a, he was on a movie set here in Chicago. They were shooting a movie. And uh, he agreed that I could come out and interview him in his trailer. And I, we sat, I sat down and we, we had this interview, this conversation. And it was so great. As a matter of fact, I, at some point, another radio station, it was WVON at a later point. I did work there at one point, but this is when I was not working there. I was working at WBEZ. And they knew about the interview. So when I see Davis, uh, passed away, they called me and asked me, could they get a copy of that interview and run it? And so I asked BEZ and they said, yeah. So it ran on WVO. That rarely happens like that, but because it was Ossie Davis uh, and because the interview was just so, I mean, I really enjoyed it a lot. And, uh, you know, yeah, you're right. I interviewed a lot of people, uh, Oprah, uh, even Barack Obama before he became elected to anything, as a matter of fact. But but Ossie Davis, that was the one. I interviewed Spike Lee, a lot of other people. But Ossie Davis, number one. That's, that's the man. Yeah, yeah. Now, you were asked one time to name three songs that would sum up your life. <laughs> and I love your response to it. If you could share this with our, our viewers, three songs, because I couldn't think of how I would answer that question. But anyway, three songs that sums up the life of Richard Steele. Well, the first one was uh, 
by the Spaniels, a doo-wop group from way, way back in the 50s. And the song uh, that, I, that I really picked out was called Peace of Mind. That was a slow ballad. And the reason, Clarence, I picked the song is because when I went to Hirsch High School, I sang with a doo-wop group, me, Richard Pegee, and three other guys, right? So uh, I sang lead, not because I had a great voice, but my voice was in the same range as uh, Pookie Hudson, who was the lead singer for the Spaniels. So when I sang, when we sang that song in the auditorium, uh, the girls would go, ooh, and I said, whoa, this is, <laughs> I like, this is happening, you know, because, you know, get that kind of play from girls if you played on the football team or the basketball team, but that was in season. We were always in season, you know, <laughs> so, so that was, that was my first big thrill. We did a lot of doo-wop shows and, and I really enjoyed that a lot. So that's, Peace of Mind was my first uh, strong influence. Secondly, Miles Davis, the album Kind of Blue. Uh, 1959, I loved it like everybody else from the moment it came out. I mean, it was, um, I couldn't think of anything that was better than Miles. And, you know, back in the day, uh, you wouldn't remember this because you don't go back that far. But when you went to a young lady's house to visit, if you had an album under your arm that you were considered very cool. And I had Miles under my arm, but a lot of, a lot of cats were not actually listening to it. You just carried the album because it was cool. I was actually listening. And okay. so uh, there's a tune on there called All Blues. And that was one of the, I, I liked them all, but All Blues uh, was my favorite off that kind of blue album, which by the way, is the, holds the record for the, for the best-selling uh, jazz album in history ever. Whoa, I didn't know that, okay. Yeah, absolutely. So third one was uh, Pharrell Williams. And this was kind of like, I guess at the end when I was retiring, from WBEZ, we had a big a big event. And uh, uh, I liked that song, Happy. I thought it was, I really liked that song. You know what I mean? I looked, I don't know if you've ever seen the version uh, on YouTube where it's uh, the long version where they went to different countries and had, it's a real long version, like hours long. They went to countries all over the world and they had people lip sync into it. it it's absolutely great. But that was my feeling about, I was happy about retiring, not, you know, one of those things about, oh, I'm so glad to get out of here. You know, <laughs> it wasn't like that because I love BEZ and the people I worked with. Uh, I was happy about uh, my whole career and about, uh, you know, the joy of having been in radio that long. And, you know, and I was still gonna do some things, um, but I was just happy, you know? So I had, I had, I had that played, you know, uh, as my celebration song during the party. I'm happy, <laughs> you know? Cool. You received the uh, Studs Turco Community Award a few years ago. That's a huge honor. How did it feel receiving it? Honestly, I felt like I didn't deserve it. I mean, I had, uh, we did a special project at BEZ. I used to do these pieces where we'd uh, uh, do uh, kind of a documentary, a radio documentary. And I've forgotten which one that was, but I had done a number of them. But I had a great producer. Uh, several producers working with me. So when I got the award, they had a big luncheon and all of that. I went and I accepted the award, but I really, because honestly, in my own mind, uh, even based on what I said a minute ago as a talk show host, I never considered myself a journalist. And so, um, you know, when I received that award, an award in which journalists uh, get, um, I felt that 
you know, I got I just got lucky because I had some people that I was working with and worked with me who were actually, you know, real journalists, uh, and I learned a lot from them in terms of my writing and some other things. But I, I, you know, I felt like I wasn't really a journalist. I felt like Studs Terkel used to say that he he wasn't a journalist; he was a recordist because he used to record everybody and do these interviews, and that's how he came up with his books uh, at different at different points in his career. So I I really always felt inadequate in terms of that studs circle thing um, you know just i just didn't feel like i was up to it i did have an experience with studs circle a uh, couple of times really i interviewed him once when he had just gotten out of the hospital i think he had a heart surgery had heart surgery and uh, i couldn't believe how active he was because he had just because i said you know studs just got out of the hospital and i was interviewing about his book and uh, he had done three interviews that day he had more energy than me. <laughs> and and uh, the other thing that stands out in my mind, Clarence, and I'll never forget this either. Mm. After 9-11, you know, when 9-11 when happened and the World Trade Center went down and, uh, you know, everybody had, you know, it was just, it was an awful time. So Studs, he made the comment. He said he wanted to talk about it and do a commentary on it. So he knew me. And my and 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 the producer I had, he knew her, so he asked if we would come to his house, and sit down with a tape recorder and do an interview with him. So we did. What Studs Terkel said was, well, you know, while he was certainly tremendously impact had tremendously impacted it, it the impact it had on him about the 9/11 uh, tragedy, the loss of lives and all of that, um, and he clearly made that point. But then he said we have to look at what what did we do to make people hate us like that you know what is do we have to we need to sit down and really take a hard look at at who we are and man and that's when i when i talked to him i said stud there's going to be a lot of negative reaction about that you know that's going to be a really difficult thing for people to accept what you're saying he said yeah i know but that that's how i feel about it and i do think we really need to you know, uh, take a look at ourselves and blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, well, you know, I, I sat down and asked him some more questions and we talked about it. And uh, we recorded it and uh, they, they put it on the air at BEZ. And boy, did he get beat up by the, by the local press. You know, they, mm -hmm. he's old, he's crazy, and he, he lost his mind and blah, blah, blah. And he hadn't lost his mind. That's what he thought about it. You know, we, we talked and that's how he felt. But, uh, and he knew he was going to get beat up, but he said he had to be honest in terms of what his own thinking was. And so that's what he did. But I'll never forget that because uh, in terms of being a, a journalist, even though he said he felt like he really wasn't a journalist, but he was. Um, and sticking to his guns, somebody who, you know, this is what I believe. You know, and, uh, you know, Studs had a lot of credibility in the journalism world. And so he took a well, he kind of took a big chance, but at, at that point, Studs was like 80, I think, you know, because I think he lived to be 91. And so uh, it was a real lesson for me in terms of uh, making a commitment in terms of your thinking and uh, sticking to it. And I'll always remember that. Studs Turkle. Yes, indeed. How would you like to be remembered, Richard? I mean, you've given so much to the city of Chicago. I mean, we just discussed great things, but how would you like to be remembered? Clarence, it's very simple. This is for me. It's not rocket science. And I heard. Uh, and I must admit that I heard somebody else 
somebody else say this, but I, I, I really love what he said. This was an interview I saw with Sidney Poitier, and he was asked that very same question. And he simply said, I'd, I'd like to be remembered as a nice guy. Boom. That's it. That's, That's it. it. Yeah. Not complicated. None of that it was just said, like be remembered as a nice guy. You know, uh, and that's the size of it. You know, I mean, uh, uh, I don't have any <laughs> any profound things to say about that. You know, uh, uh, life has been good to me. I've had a lot of great experiences, and I've got family at this point, and uh, uh, I've got a brother who I'm pretty tight with, and so uh, you know, he's a he's a principal, a retired principal of a grammar school. Uh, I'll just say this just may not be for the interview necessarily if unless you wanted to but i my mother had a hard time believing that i could do a have a career in radio she used to think that that's something that people do on the side that's not like a real job kind of thing and so it was years before at some point she said uh wow because people used to say to her richard steals your son oh wow you know what i mean that kind of thing <laughs> so um so, you know, at that point, she began to uh, have some different thoughts on that. But my mother's position was that uh, if you didn't go and get a college degree, then you weren't really, you need to do that in order to make it in life. And I didn't do that. And so, but my brother, he filled the gap. He went back to school. Uh, he got a degree, then he got a master's, then he got a, a doctorate in education, so he became a principal. So, you know, um, so in my family, uh, that was a good thing. So, you know, I don't, uh, life has been okay. I mean, I, I just try to be a good guy, do the best I can, be fair, treat people fairly, and, uh, you know, not not tell a lot of lies. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, so, you know what I've been doing lately, and this is just because I'm getting older, I just turned 80, 80 years old, um, and I did a little, little bit of this before, but I do more of it now. When I see people panhandling, when I see people panhandling outside Walgreens or Dunkin' Donuts, um, most of the time I put something in their pocket. You know, what I mean, it's five bucks or ten bucks or whatever. You know, because I can do that, and uh, I don't do it for them to think, "Oh, yeah, that's a great guy." No, I just do it because I think, had life gone in a different direction, that could be me. All right. Well, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you very much, Richard. I really appreciate this.